All right. Well, it seems like we have quite a few people, so go ahead and get started. I don't have, sorry to say, a ton of uh, news articles to cover beyond some items that uh, over the past week or two have been posted in um, our Facebook. Um, there's just not a lot of news going on. I think kind of remote ID kind of saturated the uh, the news cycle. Um, and after that, there wasn't a ton going on. However, um, one of the biggest uh, pieces of news is going to be um, the FAA... Uh, and again, we posted this in our Facebook, um, has given uh, $5.8 million in research grants uh, for various different um, kind of research uh, initiatives. Um, and these are all going to universities. Uh, but some of the key things to note in here is uh, some risk type assessment um which i feel like uh this should have been from before remote id but um it'll be interesting some of them are like uh, a uas engine ingestion test so if a uas gets sucked into an engine uh what kind of damage are we looking at um mid-air collision likelihood uh looking at a uh, small uas and their potential to um uh, collide with a manned aircraft. Um, and then the biggest one I think that we are most uh, excited about is uh, shielded operations. Um, so uh, the University of North Dakota is the lead, lead university on that, and they join uh, Kansas State University, Embry-Riddle, New Mexico State University, and North Carolina State University. Um, so for those who don't know, shielded operations is... Essentially, if you're flying in an area and you're staying below the, the highest uh, object uh, or the tallest object um, in your vicinity, then um, you should be able to fly without much of any restrictions, essentially. So yeah, it sure seems like some of this should have been done a long time ago. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree with you. I'm also um, very curious. What if what if some of it turns out like the the midair collision likelihood turns out to be basically zero? Would they change any regulations based on that? I don't know, and that's something <laughs> that unlikely, you know. But... So, well, I mean, one of the key things is is that we, as an organization, uh, being the FPBFC, um, will keep a close eye on what comes out of these research research initiatives. Um, because those types of that type of data will help fuel uh, future suggestions and uh, kind of uh, talking points with the FAA. So, Do you think the data will be public, or will it require a Freedom of Information Act to get it? Or, well, I mean, they did uh, um, publish the previous Assure grant or grant data, so I'm okay. thinking that it's going to go public, um, but. Again, you know, if we need to go that route, we'll go that route. Um, so I, I definitely think that uh, quite a few of these are going to be ones we want to watch. Um, so mid-air collision, the ingestion, 
uh, because those are going to be the risk-based assessments. And then obviously shielded UAS, if that turns out, you know, amazingly well, which I can't imagine that it doesn't, um, then that's going to be something that we want to push for um, going forward. And especially uh, in 2023, uh, when the uh, FAA Reauthorization Act comes up again. Um, so it's going to be a pretty big deal. So hey, I'm, yeah, it's something? I'm, I'm always the, uh, optimistic about things like this. And uh, of course, um, we recommended shielded operations back in the, the uh, UAS facility maps uh, DAC session, and it was no, there was no mention of it in the response. So we we're going to go back to the FAA, and here we here we find that they've uh, taken action on it. That's great, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm optimistic. And one way of uh, following up on this is uh, I've got the homework assignment uh, that I'm going to see if I can find someone at the University of North Dakota. I mean. How many people can there be in that school? It's right. in, it's in North it's in North Dakota. <laughs> it's probably less than uh, one of the boroughs of uh, Manhattan. Yeah, and uh, I mean the the cool thing with this is it's been limited to a couple <clears> of key. Uh, a lot of the same universities are working on a lot of the same are working on the different tasks. Um, so if we make point of contact with one. Uh, we can probably, you know, open up, you know, point of contacts to several of the others. So, um, like Embry Riddles on several of these, especially the key ones. Um, and uh, uh, let's see, University of Kansas, and um, so quite a few uh, different key points that we definitely want to look at on uh, taking some of this stuff even further. So, pretty big deal there. Um, Questions, comments? Isn't CDRA from U- University of North Dakota? They, I'm sure we could con- contact the uh, Jordan uh, from CDRA, Collegiate okay. Drone Racing Association. Okay. Well, I didn't know that, but he's, that's awesome. He's right there at University of North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Jordan, Jordan who is that? Uh, it. I don't know how to pronounce the last name. K R U E G E R. Okay. He's the Kruger. president of the CDRA. Uh huh. Kruger. So. Okay. All right. Perfect. Cool. Good. You guys, have you guys heard of um uh, ACAS X? It's similar to what shielded UAS ops detect and avoid uh, subject there on that website. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, we have. Yeah. yeah. That sounds very, very similar to what, I mean, I don't, I don't understand what the difference is. APL is actually helping uh, the UAS integration office uh, with that. So they, they first did it on like big, you know, cl- you know, group five type drones, but now they're doing it on small UAS. So, um, yeah. Nice. Because okay. it's like, it's like T- ACAS-X is like TCAS, newer version of TCAS. Um, Aircraft collision avoidance system, I guess it was stands mm-hmm. for. So, yeah. Well, if you need anybody awesome. to go visit them in person, just let me know. It's just a f- short little four-hour drive for me to get up there. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. awesome. Okay. Although it may feel like a twelve-hour drive in the middle of the winter. <laughs> yeah. or, should, or should we say okie dokie? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> So it'll be interesting. I think one of the things uh, we need to do uh, 
Dave and, and Dan uh, is, you know, get in touch with somebody there, see when they're going to spool these uh, research uh, tasks up and then see if we can, you know, either, you know, provide information, help, uh, or, you know, get some ideas of the direction that they're going on that kind of stuff. All right. And I've got a, uh, to, Elias, <laughs> to Elias's point, uh, I do need to do some homework on AKSX and see if, um, you know, if there is a difference and, uh, Certainly, and I've got a an MIT paper that's uh, uh, that digs into this. So, uh, yeah, I think I, I'm not. I don't. Brush, I just want to circle back to that because I, mm -hmm. I'm taking taking notes, and uh, uh, that is uh, one of the areas to, to look into on this whole topic. Uh, yep. yep. All right. So next up is uh, Air Map. So. Um, I don't know how much of you have uh, stayed up to date on this, but AirMap uh, published a series of tweets basically suggest, suggest, suggesting, I can't speak today, I'm sorry, that uh, the airspace, uh, namely um, UTM, should be uh, monetized. And this is something that we kind of talked about from the beginning of discussion of UTMs and some of the potential issues with remote ID was that it was seeking to monetize the airspace. Um, so they, you know, obviously faced a, a bunch of backlash over this um, with uh, pilots, you know, calling to boycott air map and, um, you know, uh, removing the app from their phone and, and all that kind of fun stuff. So, um, and uh, AirMap has been kind of uh, historically, it mentions in the article, um, hostile to the idea of open skies. Um, and so, you know, monetization of the airspace is definitely a, a net negative for just about everybody except for those who are in control of the UTMs. Um, we get that, you know, the whole UTM dichotomy uh, is going to be centered around some kind of monetization, but at the, you know, at this current point in time, um, hobbyists, I mean, with the lack of network requirement for remote ID, UTM is not a money-making venture, um, except for when it comes to, you know, large fleets, um, looking we, to do, we, you know, go ahead. When we look at companies like Kitty Hawk, who has, uh, since they've been working with the FAA on Before You Fly and their Kitty Hawk version of their um, uh, flight approval uh, system is free to hobbyists, which to me is a, a great thing to, mm -hmm. to encourage. I'm, I'm all about uh, making money and for-profit and figuring out uh, the right businesses, but you know, there are situations where, you know, I think we, you know, none of us are happy with uh, AirMap and as TextCheck text mentioned, one of our um, DAC members uh, suggested that we boycott AirMap, and uh, that was uh, Vic Moss. And uh, you know, Vic, of course, is uh, we're working closely with uh, Vic Moss and uh, Inji Sukahara with their uh, Drone Service Provider Alliance. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm on the, I'm on, I'm one of the advisory board members to that uh, organization. So yeah, it's it's a good group. And uh, yeah, this is a tech AirMap is a is a company that uh, we're disappointed that they, they continue to take this path. It's something I heard on the SUAS news stream the other day as they were talking about AirMap and 
they said originally AirMap was launched as an app called No Fly Zone, and their idea was um, businesses and maybe residential residential mm -hmm. areas could uh, mark their property as no fly zones, and you would pay this app company to tell drones that they can't fly over your property. So from the beginning, yeah. they've been all about monetizing the airspace. So I didn't know that about the no fly zone. I've heard about the company called No Fly Zone, and I knew that's what they did, but I didn't know that 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 they potentially. Yeah. I believe that turned that. into AirMap. That's yeah, interesting. That's, 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 that's correct. And geez, too bad it didn't make them make them money, money. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, definitely. I mean, the key point that the article does make, however, is that um, you know, while currently there is no network requirement for remote ID, it, the, the remote ID didn't exactly close the door to that. So, um, yeah. it says at this time, um, that uh, at the time, you know, at this time, the rule will only finalize broadcast based remote identification. So, you know, it's uh, definitely something to watch. And, um, you know, I feel like our hobby is expensive enough. I don't want to pay to, you know, just take off. That's a bad idea. <laughs> I was joking. Like, how many flights do you have when you do a race or when you're out freestyling? Oh, or my God. If you crash and you bounce, do you have to pay for every time you bounce <laughs> off the ground? Uh, I love the way your mind works, Dan. <laughs> Each of those are landings and takeoffs or what? How much for that? Give it. Right. Right. <laughs> Wait, I only crash, so I'm not landing. Yeah. <laughs> Take off once, only crash. Oh my goodness! So the other thing that's key to point out is that AirMap has lobbied significantly for localization of you know drone regulations, which is obviously um, something that uh, we we don't want to you know, look at. So, uh, because yeah. the more local localized drone regulations are, um, the harder it is to keep track of what's going on across the United States. It's easier to follow one set of rules than it is to follow, you know, a different rule for every County state, you know, town that you're in. It just makes it a patchwork of regulation and it's just a hot mess. So is that leading to a story in New York where they're trying to say you can't create regulations yes, like that? Actually well, it does. Look at that segue. The New York regulation looks fine to me, but the, the one that would does not look fine is um New Mexico. And there's another I think it was a southeast state. But uh yeah, for once, I looked at the uh, the New York New York State Senate legislation, and I'm supportive of it. It's uh, yeah, it's, it looks like yeah, fine, and you know, get let's because mostly with the New York um, State Senate uh, regulation or law, does not a reg, uh, will uh, if they pass it, will institute that uh, it it says you will follow follow uh, federal uh, laws. So they you know they look at uh, federal. Uh, FAA regulations as the guiding uh, practice, and then they add a uh, couple of things because it's New York and they can't leave well enough alone. But it's uh, it was reasonably positive, so I'm supportive of that one. However, yeah. the New Mexico one is really problematic, and that's uh, um, Vic Moss and the uh, commercial, the 107 guys are uh, trying to get themselves organized to 
see what they can do to get the folks in New Mexico to contact their state legislators and uh, uh, let them know that this is not uh, not a good piece of legislation in New Mexico. Yeah, the uh, the New York State one is very close to what it is here in Arizona, and oh. basically says you know the the state will determine. Uh, UAS, you know, regulation and law, and uh, it preempts everything else. And uh, so basically, the different counties and cities can't make uh, rules and regulations regarding UAS. Uh, it, it it all falls down to the state. So um, very much similar to how it is in the state of Arizona. Um, and it just seems like the most common sense to just point back to the federal regulations and and then, uh, you know, take it from there. So, yeah, uh, and, you know, Texas has uh, some onerous. Uh, I've got some uh, interesting like privacy uh, yes. legislation yeah. that's exactly. uh, problematic for sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, did that, did that. Let's see. Um, I only have two more, and again, I'm sorry. Uh, it's just a slow news cycle week for UAS. Um, so Wingcopter has raised uh, 22 million. Um, this is a German uh, drone company, uh, and uh, so this is all venture capital. And they are looking to expand their operations into Kentucky, I do believe. I did go to their website and look at their career section. They are hiring people in Kentucky, um, mostly like director of operations and stuff like that for the time being. Um, but I'm sure once they get kind of situated in there, there, there possibly will be some uh, drone jobs uh, uh, for the folks in that area. Um, so uh, they... Uh, mostly do uh, commercial, well, they're primarily based uh, commercial medical supply delivery. Um, and um, let's see, they generally, they, I mean, they're, they're essentially right now, they're focused on just being an equipment manufacturer. Um, however, they are looking to move into um, service as well. So they will... Um, start cycling that up so 22 million dollars is nothing to sneeze at but uh um we'll see what goes on there they operate it's basically a tilt rotor design so um it's a quadcopter with tilt rotors and then once it gets to altitude it switches into uh forward wing based flight so that's an interesting approach for that, that problem. yeah i don't so, why something like that that has uh, two modes, uh, both a hover and then a, a high yeah. speed uh, forward. So they have, uh, I think, uh, let's see. So the heavy lift model uh, can fly up to 75 miles at speeds up to 100 miles an hour and can carry payloads of about 13 pounds. So that's not a small Ooh. payload. Wow. So I, I appreciate the, the savvy up to 100 miles an hour. <laughs> United States speed limit for UAS, 100 miles an hour. Well played. So uh, from the images in the, uh, let me copy this, from the images in the article, it looks like they have a pod situated on the underside of the fuselage there, and that would be kind of the cargo pod. 
Yeah, I, um, bet, that, I bet the uh, to Millipede's question, I bet the center of gravity gets rather important on this uh, aircraft. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, it'd be interesting. You know, it'd be interesting to know how that pod is set up on the inside to kind of accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you transport liquids or things that roll around in there? <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. could get a little sketchy. Um, beans in there, or something or ball bearings. <laughs> yeah, something to distribute the weight. Yeah, um, that'd be interesting. So, uh, and then uh, it says that it is also looking into. They're going to be introducing a new model of drone soon with different capabilities. So, um, but they are going to be offering a drones as a service business as well, or, or they're looking to. I would say. So, um, let's see. And last but not least, I do have this. So FAA approves beyond visual line of sight drone operations without visual observers. So the FAA has made its first approval of automated drone operations without human pilots or observers on site. Um, they use a aerial intelligence platform called the Scout System, which uses acoustic detect and avoid technology and a layered redundant safety algorithm created by American Robotics to conduct beyond visual line of sight flights in the national airspace. Um, so uh, the current... App- oh, go ahead. This just underscores how, to, in, in my opinion, how where the FAA is going with beyond visual line of sight Mm-hmm. which is it's going to be redundant it's going to have uh, a lot of capabilities it is going to have detect and avoid capability and so very different from our uh, recreational drones and so it's uh, uh, this is a, an area that i think we're going to see as uh, off uh, off limits for us flying recreational and uh, legally doing what almost everybody who has ever done a mission planner uh, plan has ever done in the past Mm-hmm. <laughs> recreationally for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So let's see, we've got uh, the scout system employs multiple risk mitigations, including advanced real-time sensors and algorithms that provide various safety and reliability functions, including detect and avoid of other aircraft and obstacles, automated real-time system diagnostics and fail-safes, and automated flight mission management. Um, and this comes from Aviation Today. Um Let's see. And text Pretty. is telling us that it's painted orange, and therefore that's the. <laughs> okay, TextJet, I'm I'm forgetting what what uh, U.S. Uh, car manufacturer painted their blocks orange. <laughs> it, it was. I, I'm betting knows. <laughs> oh man. Okay, it... it's back in the '60s. Was that Mopar that did that? I think it was. I'm thinking Mopar. I think it was. So you could see him. Yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's kind of what I have. I don't have uh, anything else. Um, Dave, did you want to talk a little bit about uh, your conversation the other day? Sure. I think uh, the one point, and so we'll be updating the remote ID uh, document that's out on our website. Uh, if you took a look at it, you'll see that there are two sections which uh, relate to 89.115A and B. And uh, what's important about those is they describe uh, a sentence or some sentences that uh, characterize 
the uh, person operating the controls of the aircraft must be able to see the UAS at all times. So it tells you about uh, visual line of sight, but uh, there is no um, additional or parenthetical description about, well, F how about FPV and how about a visual observer? And if you take a look at um, part 107, uh, or you look at uh, 88409 for recreational, there is that type of uh, description. And so we, we took this to uh, the FAA and we, we went, uh, went high. So we we're talking to executives in Washington, DC, and uh, they assured us that this is not an issue. So what we were worried is, is there an intent to uh, do away with FPV? And they were emphatic that uh, there, there is not uh, an intent. And they are, uh, they, uh, we talked uh, quite a bit uh, after after this single point about the uh, the amount of work and the amount of uh, response that the FAA made and their uh, the point they wanted to make is they spent more time on recreational uh, than any other single community and I think that's entirely appropriate in as much as there are 1.2 million uh, recreational uh, UAS in the United States and uh, no one no one other constituent comes close. The, uh, they're tracking about 500,000 uh, commercial. So to us, uh, a positive, you know, it we were all pretty sure that that's the answer we would get, but it was so important that uh, we wanted to make sure that that was the case. Uh, we also uh, asked questions about 89501, which has to do with uh, manufacture and intent. And uh, this one is a little more vague. Um, we do have, uh, uh, back on the on the 89115, uh, uh, there may be some a uh, request for an advisory circular to, for clarity on that. Uh, some of the folks are still a little concerned that uh, you know we're we're taking the uh, the FAA uh, at their word. And this was the uh, the top of uh, the UAS uh, integration office, so uh, uh, this was. And we didn't you know this is not to uh, disparage uh, any of the folks uh, in the field offices or our drone pros, but uh, this was uh, important enough that we wanted to uh, uh, go to uh, go to the, the folks who were, who were responsible for the, uh, for the for the rules. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, one of those people that would like to see that in writing at some point from the FAA before remote ID goes into effect. Yeah. Yeah, and and that, so that's that's something we will uh, we'll keep track and uh, uh, we'll we'll follow up to see if we uh, if we are getting a. Uh, an advisory circular on that. Uh, the other point was uh, we brought up the the fact that the right now there is no recreational representation on the deck. Uh, we had um, uh, Rich Hansen uh, from the AMA was on the deck and he's uh, no longer. And of course, um, uh, DJI, uh, while a manufacturer, not an operator, has been a fantastic supporter of recreational as well as commercial. And uh, they're no longer. Uh, Brendan Schulman was uh, was on the deck and is no longer. So the uh, uh, it's great that uh, two of our colleagues, uh, Kenji Sukahara and Vic Moss, uh, are new DAC members. Their of course uh, their their focus is uh, Part 107, uh, but they have also uh, reached out and uh, they're trying to help us wherever they can in terms of recreational and uh, FPV. That's positive. Uh, in addition, uh, the FAA folks uh, uh, 
encouraged us to uh, keep my application uh, on file. And uh, they said there, there are always um, uh, people uh, leaving, departing. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. So we'll, uh, we'll keep at it. And uh, this won't change uh, the work we are doing. Uh, it would be nice to have a seat on the deck that would give us the opportunity to recommend uh, new tasking groups, uh, as well as um, have a, uh, be able to vote and to be able to speak up during a DAC meeting. Right now, when we attend a, a DAC meeting as a, uh, a volunteer, volunteer uh, we have to keep quiet. So, and that's this is a standard um, uh, a practice for a, uh, an advisory council. Um, I just see uh, text jets. Uh, so a v VO is optional. Nope, a VO is uh, not optional. Uh, if we're flying uh, FPV, the uh, one of the ways that uh, one of the folks characterized the remote ID rule is that they said it's operating rule agnostic. So it, it does not take precedent over uh, 88409 recreational exception or part 107. So as we see. Uh, the need for a visual observer for both uh, FPV uh, with 107 or, or yeah, part 107 or with um, uh, recreational, that's still the case. No changes there. So the reason they need to have that in the remote ID rule is because it sounds like they plan in the future to get rid of some of those requirements that are currently out there so that those commercial beyond visual line of sight flights can be done. And one, one of the... the the things that, that I want to do as we're working with the, uh, the Drone Advisory Committee is we're working to get more of the members uh, uh, behind a set of goggles. And so we want them to try FPV. And uh, we want to circle back on the point that uh, we made in uh, our response to the remote ID NPRM, which is when you put on a set of goggles, your situational awareness is heightened, not decreased. Uh, with respect to, you know, th those of us who fly uh, model airplanes and you're struggling to see orientation of a little speck in the sky, uh, it's sure a lot uh, better when you've got uh, uh, goggles and you're, you're sit sitting in the cockpit, albeit, you know, I get it with respect to uh, peripheral vision, et cetera. But I, I think there's a point to be made there. And I would, um, the argument that I'm making is uh, it's far better uh, than uh, having a, a VO. And you could certainly make server. the argument that it's better than being in many manned aircraft. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially since you can actually here. hear yes, something. FPV is way easier, especially on a cloudy day when your plane is uh, <laughs> sky colored. Funny. Yes, I have, I have done that. I thought it would be a great idea to uh, cover a, uh, a sport plane in silver Monaco. Boy, was that a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of the things, you know, I'd like to kind of reiterate, kind of hash out, but, um, you know, one of the, we did make this point in our response that, you know, situational awareness is, is actually extremely good, you know, and we can all, you know, anybody can make the argument, well, you don't know what's behind you. Yeah. But the ability to turn on point with a quadcopter, especially is massive. I mean, it's so fast, it's ridiculous. So, um, and if any of you have not done this and I highly recommend you do just for the experience, you know, but, um, take a, take a pilot exploration, uh, um, trip. Basically you pay, uh, you, you get to go up in like a Cessna or, or something like that. You get to fly for, you know, about an hour, but you get to actually experience what the, 
visual acuity of a pilot is in an aircraft and it's very limiting um i got to do this and it was amazing how little you could actually see um in fact half of what you're looking at is essentially the dashboard of the plane um and you kind of have to you know kind of peek your head up over it just to see anything um but uh your situational awareness is unlimited uh in regards to a certain degree you know depending on what your field of view is on on your camera that's on your drone i mean almost i mean anywhere from 120 to 150 degrees um but uh you know being able to see that 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 far or that that big of a air, you know piece of the sky is amazing and in comparison to a pilot it's just unmatched to a manned pilot i would say what kind of so, airplane were you in oh god i want to say it was some kind of cessna but it was a while ago um but uh um i mean it was definitely fun and it was cool you know being able to fly a plane and the funny part to me you know totally off subject but the funny part to me is how little you actually had to manipulate the controls uh when you're actually up flying um it, it definitely doesn't take a whole lot and i mean it's easier than driving a car I mean, in some regards, uh, but uh, yeah, that's the magic behind it, brother. Mastering, <laughs> mastering the amount of the least amount of input you have to do to be able to get what you need done is uh, master. That is actually really hard. Initially, yeah, it's easy. Maybe it looks like, but uh, to finesse. Oh, I can that imagine. Right yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, mastering it, I'm sure, is absolutely <laughs> you know a whole nother ball game. You know, I've done this yeah. once, and uh, I'm, but it's definitely experience and. You know, it actually doesn't cost a whole lot, so it's definitely something I recommend. Um, it definitely made me want to get my, you know, uh, private pilot's license. So, uh, you know, it, part of it has to also do with um, the, most of general aviation aircraft are statically and dynamically stable as well. Mm -hmm. If you guys know what that means, so um, uh, from an aerospace engineering perspective, when they design the aircraft, right? So it's just you yeah. let go of the airplane, and a lot of the time it will recover itself if you're in a deep if you're in a stall or yeah you know, um stuff like that yeah uh, um so i do want to you know talk about uh uh what TextJet is talking about so um if you're flying fpv let's let's talk about visual observer and fpv so if you're flying fpv obviously you have the goggles over your face and while you know the argument can be made about your situational awareness regulations currently state that um you have to have unaided view or, or unaided line of sight uh, to your aircraft, to your unmanned aircraft. Um, so your spotter can't be wearing a set of goggles. Uh, it's not enough that they can just take them off and find it because your situational awareness, if you think about it, your situational awareness going from the goggles to line of sight is definitely hindered because it's not easy to discover from taking off the goggles to finding the drone in the sky um is not a quick thing to do um that's i mean if anybody's ever tried to do that like you know if your vtx has failed or something which i definitely have um it's very difficult to figure out where your where your aircraft actually is so where you might uh, be getting confused there textjet um Josh is talking about the current regulations for flying FPV. Remote yes. ID does not 
change the regulations that are currently existing for flying FPV and the requirements of having a visual observer, they just also mention that the pilot has to have the ability to see the aircraft at all times. And that mm -hmm. will come into effect in 2023 when the remote ID stuff comes into play. Right. So LOS is has not been removed. So if you're flying line of sight, if you are actually flying line of sight and you're not flying FPV, you don't need a visual observer because you are the visual observer and the pilot in command. So, um, yeah, I, I hope that clarifies it a little bit. So, you know, essentially what happened with remote ID is they put in this extra little bit of language, but what they did not do and they chose not to do is to define um, what, you know, visual line of sight is in the, in the article. So, or in the, in the regulation. So it falls back to the previous definition. So if you are, okay, so I'll, I'll say it again. If you are flying line of sight, um, then you do not need a visual observer. Okay. Because you are the visual observer. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah and if, sense. if you're flying FPV, you need somebody sitting next to you watching you. Yeah, right. and they have to be co-located, so they can't be out, you know, uh, you know, 500 meters from you. Um, uh, you can't have somebody out, you know, five meters and talking to you via walkie. Yeah. Be with you. And also, uh, just something right. to keep in mind that the FAA wants those standard compliant remote ID drones to be able to fly beyond visual line of sight. So they mm -hmm. were, will need to change the existing regulations, but they haven't done that yet. Yes, and that rule will stand uh, until they change the initial definition of visual uh, visual line of sight. And the initial definition is in the FAA Reauthorization Act. So until that changes, we, we don't know what the rule will be. We imagine that for certain scenarios, um, it may... <laughs> It may uh, change for beyond visual line of sight. Um, I don't at like, this current point in time. I don't. I can't say that it's going to change for recreation. You could just imagine if they totally get rid of the line of sight rules right now, and when we get to the remote ID stage, remote ID has some visual line of sight rules. The standard remote ID will be able to fly beyond visual line of sight. Anybody with a module or flying FPV with a home-built aircraft will have rules that say you have to have a visual line of sight or you have to have a visual observer or, you know, you have to follow what that remote ID rule says about being able to see your drone. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. It can, it can be a little confusing. But, uh, I mean, the easy way to put it is if you're flying line of sight, uh, you don't need a visual observer. If you're flying FPV, you do. And the FAA seems to want that forever, <laughs> for the most part. I mean, I guess the point of view, I mean, for me, I'm not a big FPV person. I mainly fly line of sight. Right. And so from my point of view, I see it as, okay, if I'm flying in goggles, I, I get it. You have a clear, nice picture. You have a nice field of view. You have, but I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is you're, you can still have, you know, you, I feel like you have sometimes maybe less situational awareness, especially if there's another vehicle coming from a direction where you don't can, can't see them on the lens or yeah. 
sometimes the lens is like it's like a video right so you're you can't see very like you're not you can't zoom well i mean most of them don't have a zoom in capabilities where like hey what's that little dot or noticing a little dot which could be another uas in front of you but sometimes you can't tell maybe it's just a bird maybe it's something else right so but hopefully I see the where observer you... can d differentiate between that maybe a little easier instead of looking at it through a camera lens Right. And, you know, but I think a lot of that, you know, there's a couple different things, you know, I would say, uh, and this is not to pick on analog people because I fly analog. Um, analog cameras are not the best resolution, although there are some very good resolution cameras for the FPV market out there. Um, but I think with HD video, um, you know, with, you know, DJI or, or, uh, you know, fat sharks, uh, shark bite or whatever it's called. Um, those open up a little more uh, resolution to what's happening uh, in your field of vision. Second to that, you know, I'm we're making the comparison, I think, to a manned pilot versus, uh, you know, a pilot of an FPV drone. Not so much the differentiation between a visual observer and FPV. That makes sense. So we're we're you know we're comparing the situational awareness capabilities. Uh, between the different types of pilots, I think. And you have to figure and, out where, where do you want to draw the line? Where is the risk? Where do you make yeah. the risk acceptable? So if you have one visual observer, that helps. But if you have three, that helps even more. Why isn't there a rule that says you have to have three visual observers looking in every direction? Because <laughs> right. that would th then reduce the risk even more. Yeah. Uh, so to me, there's also, if you're flying a, a video uh a drone, whether it's a, a nice uh, Mavic or uh, uh, Parrot or what, whatever, you know, they tend to move a little more slowly, and the latency is pretty high. And to compare that to uh, an FPV racing drone, and, and these things are like you know little Formula Ones in the sky. And uh, I thought, oh boy, how am I going to going to be able to see? And I'm worried about my peripheral vision. And this camera is in a fixed direction. Well, not an issue. The darn things move so fast that you, know, you can see. You know what? If you want to see what's behind you, you can see. You can flip that thing around instantaneously. Yeah. And the low latency, are, you know, provides a a direct linkage to your brain so fast. So. I'd be the first to agree that yeah, there's an issue with a uh, if the uh, link is um, is broken, that's you know a big issue. However, when it's when that video link is working, it's amazing. Yeah, and you know it, it also depends on the rates you fly too. Like when I'm flying freestyle, I mean my rates are set up at you know a, I think it's about a thousand degrees per second. So I mean I can flip my quad a thousand degrees in in a second. Um, so flipping it 180 degrees is, you know, piece of cake. So Fractions it's near instantaneous. Second. Yeah, it's near instantaneous. So, and plus, you know, you know, you're not just relying on your vis vision either. You're relying on your hearing as well because, you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to hear something in the area before you can even, you know, know that it's there and it's going to be a far enough distance away not to so. mention getting back to shielded operations you're almost always flying below the the height exactly. of the tallest building or trees around yeah so you know there's a couple of fair points to make soft targets really at that point yes <laughs> Absolutely. but you don't really hear the faa talking about that as a reason for the rules they're talking about avoiding not either 
manned <laughs> aviation and integrating into right. the airspace, not avoiding people on the ground. Yeah. And, you know, when T is correct, you know, uh, you're constantly changing directions, whether you're flying racing or whether you're flying freestyle. I mean, um, you know, you're you're very rarely going in one direction for more than, you know, a second or two. And um, so it's, it's definitely pretty interesting. Um, some some definite fair arguments to be made. Even. So, yeah, it, it is an old argument, but it's one, you know, that we feel strongly about, and yeah, I don't it, think it's wrong it, to uh, rehash yeah, it. The point, yeah, the point with that, you know, why did I bring it up? Because I, 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 if we can get people on the deck to try FPV, if they can buy into this notion, then our next step is to try to do away with the visual observer requirement. Mm-hmm. That that's that's what the that, that's what the long you know this is a long this is the long uh, long push. This is not yeah. going to happen overnight. No. Thing but, too yeah. that you can bring up potentially line of sight once you get in distance. I have no I I mean I have no idea how close I am to that object. FPV. Uh, I 100% know how where I am in relation to that object. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like uh, yeah. Like take you know, turning on final uh, in a model airplane. It's like, am I am I in front of those trees? Behind those trees? Above yeah. those trees? I mean, yeah. and and more power to people who can fly line of sight. Um, I can, but it requires a completely open field with no obstacles whatsoever. So, like the farm field next to my house. Yeah. That's where I'm going to be flying on a site because like Steve was saying, it's very difficult for me to work out where I am in relation to the objects around me. And it's just a bad thing altogether. Um, so yeah. And, and orientation is another thing. That's something that you have to, you know, as you're flipping and turning your quad, you have to maintain that visual inside your head and, you know, to be honest, I'm not very good at it. So I generally don't fly line of sight unless I'm like doing a hover test. And like, I can hover in front of me, I can do flips, I can, you know, do all that kind of stuff. But as soon as it gets more than like 15 feet off the ground, I'm just like, nope, land. <laughs> where, where are my goggles? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the yeah. only t- I mean, the only thing that I, I can fly relatively decent line of sight is a fixed wing. And um, but even that, it's like, yeah, I'm going to do that in an open field. But with FPV, I mean, I can fly proximity with a wing, you know, diving under trees and, and through gazebos and, and stuff like that. And uh, but, you know, don't ever ask me to do that line of sight because that's not going to happen. When I when I do things line of sight, just, uh, you know, um, and I've done long, far operations, like half mile visual line of sight stuff. But what I do even though it doesn't, you don't have to have it. And, you know, the regulations say you have to have, you'll, you should be able to see it in, as a dot in the sky, which is really, it's a, it's a bad written rule, right? Um, it should be, hey, you should be able to, it should be written in a way where it's, um, you should be able to see it enough so you can t- be able to tell orientation and be able to bring it back safely is the way it should be worded. Um, so, Right now, it's not like that. It just says you can go as long, far as you want, as long as you see it as a dot. Yeah, there's no distance uh, requirement. Yeah, it's, it's bullshit in my opinion. But um, <laughs> but what I do well, yeah, to mitigate that is I put a visual observer myself. I pick a couple of visual observers in in strategic spots when I want to fly far away, and if there's obstacles around or 
and whatever the case may be, I, I, I do put visual observers around and they're talking to me on the phone or they're talking to me on walkie talkie. Right. And they're, they're giving me call outs and, um, based on what I asked them to tell me. So, uh, there are ways around it, but yeah, just, just realize that, you know, that's kind of what we, what we do in the line of sight world when we want to go far. Yeah, your primary visual observer though needs to be co-located. So, um, but, not in the line of sight world. Uh, that's what the regulations state. But um, so nope. only if you're only if you're a only if you're a FPV. Only if you're. Ah, FPV. gotcha, gotcha. Yep. Okay, yeah, so. I, I put them out in at distance, so I'm flying yeah. half a mile to a mile away. Yeah, I will still visually oh, see that thing, but I'm not. Um, you know, and 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 it takes a lot years of it takes long time to be able to train. If you're just doing it on your own, flying far away, to be able to train yourself, whether it's a quad or fixed wing, slightly different. It's actually easier with a quad because you can just stop, and then yeah. figure out you know which way you're going, even if you're far away and you lose orientation. Fixed wing is a lot harder to do that with because it just keeps going and it's a lot harder to recover. Um, when you're flying long distances and you lose orientation and you're trying to bring it back. Um, yeah. You, just put, uh, you, dip, you dip a wing. It's a little tail around. Right. I mean, it does. I mean, yeah, it is. And, yeah. you know, yeah. even further, you know, the, the other thing for us FPV pilots is when we're flying, if we're flying line of sight, um, you know, most of us are going to be flying without auto level, so we can't just stop. So we are more like a fixed wing in that kind of scenario. We could flip a switch and go into, you know, uh, level mode, but um, most of us are flying completely freehand. So, um, so stopping is not really always an option for, for, yeah, if for you're flying guys. in acro, yeah, you're basically, yeah, flying acro. yeah, you can't yeah. do that. But if you're flying in stabilized, then yeah, you can, yeah, yeah, we can, and, and we can flip that switch, but yep. um, if you've got that set up, by the way, uh, Dan just posted a link to Quad Mover. This guy, if you've never watched any of his videos, he's an insane line of sight pilot. Um, the dude has uh, the best reaction times ever, and he he's one of those guys that knows exactly where his quad is in his mind. I would say he's not um, doing it line of sight. He's doing it just in his brain. It is. He <laughs> is. I mean, it, it's insane. So, you know, I definitely recommend watching a couple of his videos because... Uh, yeah, he's he's crazy. Um, all right, so wow, we really stretched that topic a long way. Thank you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for making up for my inability to find uh, good news articles. Do you know how much that Wingcopter article, that Wingcopter from Germany, uh, costs? I, I didn't see a actual cost. Um, let me. Uh, I did not look that up, but hang on one second. If they're actually bringing it to the U.S., I'm just curious how much it would cost for us to buy one. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Solution. Looking at pictures of it, I mean, this thing is not small. It's probably no. like fifty grand or something. Um. Uh, let's see. Groceries. Food. Uh, it looks like you need to request a quote. So I'm going to say it's probably going to be fairly expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime they say, yeah, request a quote. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're looking at something. Especially if it goes a hundred, hundred miles per <laughs> yeah. hundred miles per hour, 75 yeah. mile range. Uh, yeah, yeah that's, it is going to be expensive. Rotor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the I cool mean, thing with it is you're expending most of your energy uh getting it up to altitude 
And then once you're there, I mean, you've got your, uh, it looks like it's a puller. So your front two yeah. is uh, pulling the aircraft as opposed to pushing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, so I, I fly a hybrid for work. It's called a Lynx VTOL. And it's, you know, a similar concept, except it's not tilt rotor. It, it just, it has a prop in the front. But and they just fold up, yeah. And yeah, and it has four, um, you know, for the quad. So it takes off lands vertically. Yeah. Um, and then it turns off those quad, the quad motors and turns on the front, you know, the, the puller. Uh, yeah. So, and it does that, you know, nice and seeming, seamlessly. That, that is a, um, if you guys want to look that up, I think that's like an 18 grand cost us for one unit. Comes in a nice carrying case and everything. But Yeah, yeah. Jeez, I cool. Drones. <laughs> I mean, that's not even hard. <laughs> that, to me, it doesn't, that doesn't even sound tricky. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, any questions, any more questions, comments before I uh, wrap us up for the evening? Dave, you got anything else, sir? Nothing else here. Thank you. It was a good evening. Yep. Dan? No, I don't think so. All right. Alex? And David, we wish good luck with the server rebuild. <laughs> Fun times. All right, guys. Well, uh, let's see. No idea how long those shielded operation studies will last, 1T. Um, however, uh, we will do our due diligence and see if we can get in contact with somebody involved with that and give you some, you know, come back with some idea of what that's going to look like. We will definitely will share anything we learn if we learn anything about it. Yeah, because uh, we are heavily vested in shielded operations. It's a big one. All right, guys. Um, thank you Request. for this evening. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Is that my um, membership had expired? I think I only got like one email on it. Not going to be spammed, but more. Okay, I thought we had it. Okay, I thought we had it set up where it sends one at like thirty days, one at fifteen, one at seven, and then one like seven days after it expires. I will take a look and see if that's going. I do know for the first people who signed, if you were one of the first people to sign up uh, when we uh, first started that, that we had some issues with uh, some of those folks. Um, so if you were one of those, I apologize. Yeah. yeah but, there should uh, be a lot of people yeah. with their one year coming up right about now. Yeah. So uh, we will take a look at that. And uh, thank you for letting us know. All right. Well, with that, guys, uh, thank you. And uh, we will see you in two weeks. Thank you so much.